Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this uh, FEPS Talks podcast episode. In the context uh, of the the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, it has become undeniable that the care crisis constitutes one of the main challenges that lies ahead of most countries uh, in Europe, but also in the world. Uh, Women still bear the disproportionate share uh, of care work, uh, which is often undervalued and under-recognized uh, with huge implications uh, in all spheres uh, of their lives. But everyone needs care at some point in their life. Uh, and slowly, people are also coming to this realization. Uh, and it is time for people also to understand that care is a concern for everyone and not just for, for women. So how do we ensure a fair and care-focused Europe? Uh, well, it is precisely guided by this question that FEBS, uh, together with the Friedrich Erbert Stiftung, have launched a new online tool, uh, which is called the EU Care Atlas. And the purpose uh, of this new new tool is precisely to put the finger on how care deficits directly feed into the various gender gaps across all spheres of lives. Uh, And so browsing through the atlas uh, and its data makes us also better understand the complex nature of care inequalities in Europe. Uh, And so in order to explore the different realities that directly feed into the resulting uh, gender imbalances, I'm particularly delighted uh, to welcome an outspoken voice on women's rights issues, uh, who is uh, a Labour MP for Birmingham, and her name is uh, Jess Phillips. Uh, so thank you so much for joining this new Talks uh, episode. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So you've been an MP continuously since May 2015, and currently you undertake the role of uh, Shadow Minister to the Home Office. Uh, and you've previously uh, been a long-standing member of the Women and uh, Equality Committee. Yeah. Uh, you've taken on an active role on the domestic uh, abuse bill in 2021, and you published a book that is titled Mother, uh, where you share some of your own reflections uh, on motherhood, and which we will also come back to uh, later in the context of uh, today's discussion. Brilliant. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so as referred to uh, just before, uh, FEBS together with uh, FAS have launched this uh, brand new tool, the EU Care Atlas, uh, in order to highlight how care, despite its vital contribution to the well-being and survival of our societies, remain highly undervalued. Uh, beyond merely showing how women still take up the bulk of care responsibilities in most households, it seeks uh, more particularly to showcase the cross connection between those care inequalities and most other uh, gender gaps uh, in the labor market, but any other aspect of human life. In fact, when we speak about gender inequality, there's often much talk about the gender pay gap, uh, mm-hmm. which in itself is the difference, as you know, between the gross hourly earnings between uh, women and men. Currently, uh, in the European Union, it's stands at an average of 14.1%. But this, as you also know, uh, is uh, only one factor that accounts only for about one third of women's overall earning gaps, which also shows uh, that there is much missing from the general picture when we also take into into account women's over-representation in part-time work, the overall lower uh, representation in employment rates uh, compared to men, and so on. Uh, So what does this tell us uh, about the artificial divide between what is often termed as the economic versus the social spheres of life, the the productive versus the productive uh, labour and the public versus private spheres. There is so many reasons why our lack of care about care leads to the gender pay gap as well as 
you know, in and of itself, it being a problem. The fact that we have not, as a nation, a continent, a world, in any way valued the free labour of women, and and largely that is down to the fact that our labour is expected to be given away for free by every single government department. Every single government department in the United Kingdom would be bankrupt without the free labour of women every single one um and that's not just cheap labor that's not just that's not the the fact that care workers uh, and care work when it is paid is totally devalued whether that's for children elderly disabled uh, and sick people uh, where it is vastly undervalued and the reason it's vastly undervalued is because it's work done by women there's absolutely no doubt about that if this was work that had been predominantly done by men over generations, it would be paid more um, and valued more and contracts for it would have all sorts of uh, inclusion of on-call rate, overtime spending, bonus payments. Those would all uh, be included if this was being largely done by um, a male workforce. But it's the free labour that leads to basically uh, total degradation of government departments needing to take responsibility for the care that gets provided. So without the free labour of women in social care, in caring for the elderly, caring for the sick, caring for the disabled, without the free labour of women, the entire National Health Service in the United Kingdom would collapse. The care for the elderly in this country would, would be non-existent without the free labour of women. Uh, and that's before we've even started on the idea of childcare and whose responsibility it is to take time off work, to to give up their careers. The gender pay gap, the single biggest factor in the gender pay gap is the break in women's um, employment at one end and then a break in women's employment or a desire to work part time at another end because of care that they care responsibilities that society puts on them is the biggest factor without question, as well as the fact that women's pay is just lower because we value women's work just less. But every government department is guilty of this. I I focus much of my policy work around women's safety. And until very recently, and it's it's still absolutely the case, although we are moving forward, I like to think in this, is that we expect women to undertake their own safety and security. Uh, We do not invest as a government in the safety and security of uh, women across Europe. This is the same across the world. It is uh, married out. We expect women to protect themselves and deal with risk management, keep their children safe without any intervention uh, from state agencies even uh, to the point where the safety and security of the nation from terrorist threat, for example, is properly funded. It is it has huge amounts of logistical involvement. There is it is considered a priority of every single police force area. And if you look at the harm compared to the harm of domestic abuse, sexual violence, violence against women and girls in all of its forms, you cannot compare the, the harm. The harm violence against women and girls is so great. And at the moment, in UK legislation and largely around the world, it it wouldn't be considered anywhere near the same level of priority. And in fact, it wasn't even in the UK considered a serious crime uh, until people like myself and campaigners 
or for that to be the case. And that is because we expect women to look after themselves. We expect the free labour of safety and security. It's it's like suggesting that, you know, men should offer free labour to keep the borders safe. It's absolutely, you would never, the comparator to men's lack of security and the expectations on them to keep themselves safe, there is no comparator. And so the huge amount of free labour, not just in care, but on every government department for whether it's education, health, welfare of women to basically prop up the state for free. It is writ large in every country in the world. Thank you very much uh, for for this. And perhaps also, I mean, I I guess this also echoes uh, very much uh, a large uh, number of uh, reports that are ringing the alarm bell on how uh, the current situation uh, is not just uh, uh, highlighting uh, the severity of the problem, but there is a serious risk of turning the clock back uh, when it comes to gender gender inequalities. And perhaps also, you know, like since you highlighted uh, this, uh, this serious uh, lack of investment uh, in uh, public support uh, when it comes uh, to uh, to care work and uh, and investing in uh, in women's uh, uh, safety, how would you say that uh, uh, in writing the book uh, that you have written mm-hmm. yourself on motherhood, how does this echo this general situation, uh, and uh, what was your uh, your objective uh, in uh, in that uh, in that writing? So the very idea of motherhood is a political ideal, um, whether we realise it or not. And in fact, we use the term as a sort of political throwaway, as something that everybody likes. So we say the phrase motherhood and apple pie, uh, which I think comes largely from American politics, I assume, because apple pie is like an American thing. But uh, not that we don't eat apple pies here, we do. But the, the idea that, like, you know, everybody signs up to the sort of sacred nature of motherhood and actually the sort of the political representation of the mother often we refer to our countries as being mother like the idea of you know the motherland um it is it is as if it is put on such a pedestal the idea of motherhood in political language that actually it has been its downfall because this idea that you beatify you sanctify something as untouchable, the idea of the sacred nature of the mother, and and a lot of this will come from Western religious iconography, is actually, at the same time as doing that, we do absolutely nothing about progressing policy that makes motherhood an actual asset to our countries. Instead, what we do is we, we make out like it's such a sacred thing and to be put on such a pedestal that no one could ever monetize it. It's too sacred for to intervene with the economy. And, you know, this is, of course, women want to be the best mothers they can be. And we don't want to be telling people what kind of mothers they should be, apart from when we they, they come from a, a culture or a class system we don't like, in which case we're, we're more than happy to do that. Um, but this idea of the sanctity of motherhood has been used against the progress of women for generations. And I suppose in writing the sort of essay uh, in book form that I wrote about my own feelings of motherhood, my own experiences of my own mother, who was an active feminist campaigner, was that I find myself in a difficult position of, of feeling very, very fiercely about how motherhood changed my life and um, and improved it and made me feel uh, valued and wanted by a society that only values women by the progeny of their wombs. 
and I, I feel all those things at the same time as not wanting motherhood to be used constantly and forever to hold women back economically. Perhaps actually something uh, when you speak also of the, of the politic, uh, politicization of, uh, of the motherhood role, uh, something that has become evident uh, is that political office uh, does not make women immune uh, to the different challenges uh, and, uh, and boundaries. Actually, quite the contrary, right? Yeah. Uh, Perhaps yeah. uh, since we are also uh, using the different uh, uh, figurative language, I would say that in that case, uh, moving from the apple pie, I would say that the, the Polish shoe should are the shoemakers, right? Uh, when yeah. we speak about female politicians, uh, who are the ones that are the most important and vital in bringing these issues uh, in uh, politics, are themselves very often uh, not even covered uh, at the first place. Uh, so how can how can we actually ensure that uh, having children does not equal with not having a voice uh, in, uh, in politics? I mean, uh, it's, it's a real challenge um, that has, you know, undoubtedly, even in my time in politics, you know, that you see some improvements, uh, certainly in the UK Parliament, for example, for the first time ever, women who were off on maternity leave were still entitled to have their vote um, cast in Parliament by a proxy which, you know, is seems like a small thing, but, you know, that's generations of people trying to improve that. Uh, the likes of people like Harriet Harman, uh, who has been campaigning for mothers in politics her entire career. But yet yeah, there is an absolute deficit to being certainly the mother of a young child in politics. Uh, my children are a bit older now, although they weren't when I was elected. And so they largely don't call on me to be around so much. In fact, they would rather I wasn't. But the the reality is, is political life, which is like a half life. So I live half of the time away from my family is is not ideal for young parents. And you just do not see the same level of attack on the basis of your fertility uh, if you're a man in politics. So Theresa May, while she was the uh, prime minister um, of the United Kingdom, she she didn't have children. And this was asked, questions were asked of her about this. No man who was ever standing for leadership has been asked to explain his sperm count um, and nor would anyone ever dare. Yet the idea that she had some sort of deficit to her very character because she hadn't had children had to be squared. It had to be boxed off. It had to be dealt with because you as if you couldn't not ask that question of a woman politician. Similarly, as a woman who does have children, the expectations of my work, the questions I get asked, also the threats, the kind of threats and violence that I face all uh, in circle around the fact that I am a mother um, and the threats and violence to my children in a way that my male colleagues just do not suffer in the same in the same way. But yeah, the very uh, simple fact of if you want to stand to run for parliament, you know, there is no childcare resource for that. There's no funding. Um, you have to foot that bill. So if you if you are a single mother, especially, you you have the chances of a single mom of a small child who doesn't live in London already ever being able to make it into our politics is as close to zero as it could possibly be. And, and that is a fundamental flaw because there are millions of single moms in our country and they should be represented in Parliament. Very much indeed. 
Uh, and perhaps I would actually ask you to, to tell a bit more about this uh, campaign that is going on, that is very nicely phrased as a Mother Red. Uh, Mother Red, yeah, Mother yes. Red. So this has been set up by Stella Creasy, who recently had uh, two babies herself. She's she's the mother of young children. Um, it is the idea of a bit like Emily's List, which was started in um, the US, which is early money is like yeast. Uh, that funding, providing funding to mothers for care so that they can campaign, whether that is political campaigning or issues-based campaigning, is really, really important because I hear it again and again and again. The reason I can't come to this meeting is because of the kid. Um, the reason I can't take part in this lobby day is because I've got no one to look after the kids. Like that, that is, it's a genuine barrier. And so this sort of funding, uh, Stella has started this funding campaign to try and offer some of that, like the Emily's List money to people wanting to step forward who have small children. And we, we see actually similar developments uh, also uh, at the level of the European Parliament, where uh, an increasing number uh, of uh, MEPs, for instance, are advocating for better support for what has become an assembly that is also composed more and more of young and female members uh, in higher numbers than ever yeah. before. Uh, so you, yeah. do you see also, sorry. I mean, it's even worse in the European Parliament, isn't it? In that you don't just have to live in a different city; you have to live in a different country for some of the time. So, you know, that is it's that's that's quite the commute to an entirely different country. But isn't that also so important to, to ensure this, uh, for instance, to ensure mechanisms uh, like quotas to also offer greater opportunities uh, to actually put into questions uh, these uh, male standards uh, of doing politics. Oh, oh, absolutely. It should be basic. Uh, so much of women's rights activism is sort of demanding what seems like it should be totally basic. Of course, you should have facilities for childcare. <laughs> you know, that that is especially in a political life which does not run in any way to a timescale that is recognisable in the childcare sphere. So the vast majority of childcare providers, and I would say this the same for women who work shift patterns in the care industry, it's absolutely the same issue, is that irregular hours that fall without um, school hours and normal nursery or childminding hours, the women in those jobs, whether that's high office politically or shift work based workers work in night shifts we have to have a, a complete rethink about how our childcare, because actually what childcare tends to do is follow just a sort of nine to five office based man's world model and you know a care worker doesn't work nine to five a care worker works throughout the night and I, you know I'm I was um, my husband when I was elected was a night shift worker and it was a nightmare <laughs> It was a total nightmare to work around a shift pattern. We need to have a look at how we provide childcare and, and not be quite so rigorous in the models. But we've never done that because it's women who largely rely on it. And perhaps on another but still uh, quite important uh, note, in your book, uh, you also try to address, let's say, alternative conceptions uh, of motherhood and parenthood. Uh, so what is it that you actually wanted to, uh, to convey to your readers uh, as, a, as a takeaway uh, from these narratives showing also different family constellations? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, really, the book is about the sort of mothers that I grew up with, both my mother-in-law, my my nan and my mom, uh, my own mother. 
and actually they all had present completely different experiences but that to me are the experience of mothering so my my mother my nan had no mother her mother died um when she was very very little she was raised basically in sort of victorian style servitude uh like the kind of thing you see in uh downton abbey and uh <laughs> you know she was one of the below the stairs girls and that you know but she was a brilliant mother and so this idea that you there is only one path one 1950s golden standard of a family and also that i feel as maternal towards the children are my children were raised alongside so my friends children my nephews and nieces like should something happen to their parents and i was needed to be their uh, mom i would love them exactly as i love my own children and the idea that the bi biology of you carrying a baby carries some sort of you know undeniable sanctity it's just absolutely rubbish to me um and so yeah obviously i deal with lots and lots of children who've uh, been adopted uh, lots and lots of children living in foster care i've seen really brilliant examples of of motherhood that it doesn't you know it doesn't have to follow the 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 natural and normal path of a biological woman gives birth to a biological baby and perhaps uh, on a on a concluding note uh, to to leave uh, our our listeners uh, with what should be uh, the progressive responses to to bring about uh, a care focused uh, transformation of society where caring does not come at the expense of uh, of equality first and foremost the progressive response has to be to finally prioritize it to not just have it as an add-on conversation in one particular government department there is a care crisis across the world and the only progressive response is something akin to what we see in the progressive response to climate change that you know where is my G8 summit where is the you know COP 26 or for care like this is a global crisis and it needs that level of international response that the idea that we have devalued women's labor across generations to the point where we have entrenched our governments into a position of relying on someone to work for nothing is a damning indictment and needs a response that of the polar ice caps. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, for for your insights uh, to this uh, to this conversation. And I guess uh, what we we can take away is to just keep on working, keep up the work to make sure that we prioritize uh -huh. and uh, give it uh, the place uh, that it actually needs uh, in order to to value care. Absolutely. Um, everybody values it in the end. You value it when you haven't got it. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FebsTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.